You are listening to The Emulsion Podcast, a show that informs and inspires the restaurant industry to work, live, and create better. My name is Justin Kana. I'm a chef and media producer with almost 10 years of experience in award-winning restaurants all over the world. I created this show as a way to give back, to inspire the next generation, and help you progress your career. The Emulsion Podcast is sponsored by you folks, and Patreon is where that happens. If you're here as a return listener and enjoyed the episode you just came from and happen to want to support more episodes, visit patreon.com slash Justin Kana. I'd really appreciate it if you can. I totally understand if you can't. Free ways you can support this show include leaving a like or comment on this episode, filling up all five stars on iTunes so more people can find us, or simply sharing an episode with a friend. This is a solo episode. That's right, it's just you and me. I'll be dishing up a curated list of articles, happenings, and headlines that I've been paying attention to over the past few days, and then season them with my perspective and opinion on these industry stories. If you want to go deeper, full show notes are available on justinkana.com slash podcast. If you come across a story you'd like me to talk about, shoot it to me on Twitter and hashtag the emulsion so I can find it. Let's get ready to welcome your host for this episode, Justin Kana. What is up, folks? My name is Justin Kana, and this, well, this right here is an audio slash video based show in which I cover the restaurant slash fine dining slash food and wine slash chef related stories, articles that matter to me that I see scrolling through the internet, through Twitter, Facebook, you folks send me stuff on Instagram all the time. I call it The Emulsion, and this is episode 85. And because you sat through that entire intro, you're in it now. Yep, you are committed, and we are in this together. So let's start with some headlines, shall we? Next, the ever-changing, ambitious restaurant in Chicago. The way that I said that, it sounded like Next was not a bad name for a restaurant. The restaurant Next, an ambitious place in Chicago, has announced their menus for 2019. The tickets have already went on sale. If you wanted a season ticket, maybe you missed out. I'm not sure if they are sold out entirely, but those new menus for 2019 include Silk and Spice, which is, of course, exploring all of the cuisines found on the Silk Road, a menu called Italia, a range that uh, Next is no stranger to exploring, but this one will include, quote, pastas, red sauce, and classic dishes brought to life with modern presentation and technique. Barolos, Barbarescos, and Big Reds will pair with an exploration of one of the world's greatest cultures of cuisine, end quote. And then it will, of course, end with Jose Andres, World Central Kitchen, not just highlighting the modern technique and Spanish influence of the humanitarian chef, but also bringing some of the most expensive uh, ingredients and the, the price tag to go along with it uh, of the three new menus, topping out at $200, $265 on the higher end, where, quote, each evening a table will be donated and auctioned to benefit World Central Kitchen. Our goal is to raise over $250,000 in support of their mission, end quote. So in addition to all of that news, they also dropped the bomb that Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays reservations will be priced 20% less than the weekends. So if you're tight on cash, if you don't care too much to be part of the in-scene on Fridays and Saturdays, you can swing any of those menus at a really nice discount. So also a point that I didn't even realize, Next has done 25 menus so far since their opening, and this discount is said to be kind of a thank you to the customers who continue their support of the place. 
Woody Van Horn, a gentleman who I have had the pleasure of interviewing for this show, has launched a new product. It is called Woody's for Knife Cuts, and it's a kit of Band-Aids, those little finger condoms that attach to a wall as well, and he's effectively providing a solution for his industry friends to source their first aid kits from him, and in return, you get a super convenient way to store all these essentials for your kitchen. It's not a pitch, or it's not a sponsor, even though it maybe sounds like it. Uh, It's just something that a friend of mine is doing, and I want to kind of pimp him out and share this with you. Maybe you want to pick some up for your restaurant. As well as, you know, it's it as me, as someone who is very product-oriented, I would love to do something positive like this for the industry. And I'm very, I'm, I'm watching closely to see how he is marketing and presenting and selling this so that maybe I can learn from how he's doing it and where he finds success and maybe not success. Chef Steps alum Grant Crilly has announced a new show premiering on the Cooking Channel. It's called Kitchen Think, and the first episode has already premiered. He is going on a deep dive of some different techniques and different dishes. And from the pilot, which he posted on his Instagram, it looks like a mix of uh, Good Eats, Chef Steps, and, of course, Grant's own uh, weird, quirky personality. I'm honestly fascinated by this move in the way that the internet kind of embraced Grant back when Chef Steps was doing, like, weekly uploads. And you would think that this would be more of an internet-focused show. I think that, um, I think about other cooking content, right? I think about, like, if Binging with Babish got a show on ABC, you'd be like, yeah, okay, I understand you want to get paid and have the resources, but the show would probably do better on the internet where it started, Right? And I think that this we're in this weird middle ground where food shows are riding that line of being internet shows or TV shows. And I'm I'm really bad at consuming right now between watching uh, the second season of Ozark and, of course, playing Super Smash Ultimate during the limited free time that I do have. I haven't even uh, watched the final table yet, uh, much less this new show by Grant. But I will likely kind of save my time. Uh, I'll upload all of them, download them on my iPad or something for all of the upcoming travel that I have for the holidays. And then I can fully share my thoughts on what I think about this show, but I definitely was scrolling through and I saw that he announced the pilot. So um, these are 100% my first impressions from hearing the news. So what are your thoughts? Have you seen the show yet? Uh, Comment or tweet at me. You folks know that I love that back and forth life. We covered it uh, when Michael Bauer stepped down. There is a new critic in town for San Francisco. Her name is Soleil Ho. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I'm thinking like Cirque du Soleil. Someone correct me if I'm wrong. But she was apparently, quote, a clear choice. She has a fresh and modern approach to food journalism, end quote. And that is coming from the editor-in-chief of the San Francisco Chronicle. In addition to writing for The New Yorker, GQ, and Eater, she's also got a podcast herself. It's called Racist Sandwich. And while she won't start until January, technically, she has been a interesting follow on Twitter for me. She is definitely not inflammatory quite yet. She is absolutely kind of easing her way into the, into the position, even though like some of the stuff that I've read of hers in the past, and also hopefully you can tell by the title of her podcast, she's not afraid to tackle some of these issues and be a little bit inflammatory, but since um, announcing the news, it's kind of been uh, uh, very nice to follow her since uh, she took on the role and ev- and everything became public, which is completely understandable. But I'm curious to hear how she covers the constantly changing landscape of the Bay Area and how these seemingly titanic restaurants who are used to Michael Bauer's point of view 
will then uh, kind of convert to her and see see what that dynamic looks like. Because Bauer was definitely more of the traditional editorial food critic. But with Ho, she has a background as a chef. And I'm also curious to hear how that weighs in. As much as I love the empathy and the knowledge of having that background brings, I think that looking at things from a diner's perspective that the editorial stuff can sometimes do, that can often be more valuable and I would argue like objective. Um, but of course, time will tell, and being the region with the most three Michelin-starred restaurants in the U.S. right now, us folks interested in fine dining are definitely keeping an eye on her work going forward. This next headline, I didn't really want to cover it, but then I thought it was going to make, I, then I thought I was going to make it a main story, but then I switched it back to a headline because I think it's important to be on your radar, but I feel like I've talked about this at nauseum, this topic specifically. Uh, Julian Nicolini, a restaurateur who is involved in the Four Seasons restaurant, has been asked to resign after a big scandal involving sexual harassment and abuse. In a public statement, the Four Seasons saying, quote, it had been hoped that Mr. Nicolini would fulfill the agreement he made in 2016 to seek and to seek help and change his behavior during the four seasons two-year hiatus while the new restaurant was under construction in the short period of time since the restaurant had been reopened it had become clear that he had not honored that commitment end quote basically the accusation was made two years ago after a female family friend accused him of molesting her at a party he pled guilty said he would take steps to kind of remedy the situation and then that never happened that's like the tldr of the whole situation and to avoid being a dead, dead horse here i think it's important to continue to bring these stories up as we live in an age of 24 7 media and trigger happy opinions on twitter and more i think looking at these case studies of organizations that are dealing with these things in their own way can provide some real-world examples of how to handle occurrences as they arise. It does not have to be said again on this show that I'm never, ever condoning these actions, uh, but there are new people listening every single month. And it's, of course, horrible that this woman had to suffer through that experience. But on a case-by-case basis, I think this is an example of, you know, listen, man, you fucked up. We're going to give you every opportunity to make it right. And some people won't. You Like, you can't change that. And I think with everybody having skeletons in their closet, especially those that didn't have to deal with social media during a large portion of the career... If you can find a way to come to terms with these demons and acknowledge them and then move past it, I think it's an incredibly powerful kind of story arc that can eventually actually be positive as opposed to all of this kind of lying and posturing and dodging and media manipulation and finger pointing and all this negative action that often happens. And if anything... I would like to look at this story as a way to kind of not do things and do your best to kind of cross these bridges as you come to them. This headline, this next headline reads, Andrew Brochu leaves Royster, Nick Dostal joins Alinea Group. And this is huge news, not just because Nick Dostal was my old station partner at Grace, but because Nick has been through a ringer with the absolutely crazy saga of him at 16 restaurant in Chicago. Trump Tower, of course, being the venue for that. Horrible timing, at least in my opinion, and from, you know, kind of the the arc of that restaurant. But his food looked amazing. The team was so strong. And this news is super exciting as him kind of like moving on from that entire, like I said, it was a saga. And joining a group that is very well established, of course, in Chicago. And it's a, it's a bit of a misleading headline. Nick will not be the new executive chef at Royster, but he will be joining the Alinea Group and his responsibilities have yet to be announced. 
That being said, though, is also reporting in the same story that Andrew Brochu, who has been the executive chef since Royster's opening in 2016, and he's been with the group for much longer than that, will be leaving to open his own place. But that is also super under wraps. It doesn't, um, he doesn't have that much in place there yet. Dan Peretta, who is coming from the aviary, will take the reins over for Royster if you're in the Chicago area and wondering what's going to happen to that restaurant. So enough with the headlines, main stories come next, but first, today's beverage, I kind of gave it away in the intro, but we'll see what I do with the edit there. Uh, I don't know how much I'm going to drink this, I don't actually really, I don't know if I need this, this is an apricot LaCroix, um, I don't know, it's cold, I just had a tea before this, so it's kind of weird to go from super hot to crazy cold and bubbly, but I'm going to drink it. Don't mess with tradition. I want to take a very special second to give a shout out to Jeremy L. He's a brand new supporter on Patreon this month. And yes, in addition to getting a shout out here on this show, your hard earned dollars go towards making this show better and better. If you want to learn more about that, join the growing community. It is, it is of course, linked up down below as well as on patreon.com slash Kana or in like the info or description tab of however you listen to podcasts, I'm pretty sure you can access straight from there and you don't have to open a web browser. First up, industry style, Andrew Zimmern is opening a new restaurant. Yes, the chef and TV host has launched Lucky Cricket, the first of which is inside a mall in the Minneapolis suburbs, quote, serving an expansive Chinese menu that touches on Sichuan, Xi'an, and Hong Kong cuisine, end quote. And the reason that I wanted to cover this story isn't because I'm stoked about the restaurants opening themselves, it's the way that Eater chose to write about this piece. And the headline reads, quote, Why does Andrew Zimmern get to create the next P.F. Chang's? End quote. And the article continuing to say, quote, Who gets to represent whose food and to what audience? End quote. In addition to covering some of the history of P.F. Chang's, which I didn't personally know, Philip Chang is the son of Cecilia Chang, of course, legendary culinary figure, totally makes sense, and Andrew Zimmern decided to talk a lot of shit, saying, quote, I mean, was P.F. Chang's not a ripoff because Cecilia Chang's kid owned it? Because despite how he looks on the outside, he's a rich American kid on the inside, right? End quote. Internet didn't take that very well. The article continues to probe Zimmern on why opening Lucky Cricket is a good idea. Zimmern saying, quote, My point was simple. Michael White is one of the best Italian cooks in the world. Just because he's from Wisconsin doesn't mean he shouldn't be able to open an Italian restaurant if he so desires. Same with Bayless and Mexican food. I think P.F. Chang's was a great example. That family had the name and the cultural background, and they were great restaurant people, still are. But by the time P.F. Chang's opened, the family was as American as I am, in a sense. It was a vague metaphor, but I hope people got my point. I guess not entirely clear. And this question of who gets to cook what is one we all have to consider. It's an important one, end quote. And ultimately, with plans to open 200 more of these lucky crickets, he is focused on profiting heavy and making the business model scale not that different to how we talked about Ivan Orkin and his ramen restaurants on episode 83. But Eater takes it one step further, saying, quote, Lucky Cricket is basically Andrew Zimmern's corporate sit-down restaurant, Applebee's but with pork dumplings and Dan Dan noodles, P.F. Chang's but good. In comparing Lucky Cricket to P.F. Chang's and more specifically asking aloud if Chang's Chinese 
heritage gave him sanction to create a ripoff of its cuisine, Zimmer not only makes a value judgment about authenticity, the thorniest of all thorny culinary crutch concepts, but he also makes it without questioning why he gets to pass judgment in the first place. That act of translating, on behalf of the presumably white audience, the idea that American diners need to have something unfamiliar made more palatable to get them to to the table, has shades of a strange, increasingly outdated form of cultural elitism, end quote. Ha! Shout out to uh, Saleh Ho. They actually uh, reference her in this article. Uh, from an article she wrote back in 2016 where she says, quote, if a dish hasn't been eaten or reimagined by a white person, does it really exist? It's a funny quote, end quote. Um, but ultimately, you've heard Zimmern's side. You've heard this insanely harsh critique from Eater's side. What are my thoughts? Well, as with most of these very controversial stories, I land in two camps. One, I grew up in the Midwest where growing up, uh, to reference why I'm saying that, the first, if, I've, I, if I haven't said it before, the first Lucky Cricket is just outside of Minneapolis. What I thought growing up in the Midwest was the dopest, most culturally diverse Chinese food was like pork, pork pot stickers and hot and sour soup, right? That ended up getting dwarfed by the offerings of like one block of Chinatown in New York City. And that's not even like going into actual China to have like the different uh, cuisines of different regions or even like different uh, people, individual people's homes. And I understand his motivation, right? Like you've got a swath of people who are finally getting more open with their palates. They're way like I go back to the Midwest now and they're eating things that people never would have eaten when I grew up there. And there's a market for food that tastes different. And trust me, my parents, my siblings, my girlfriend's family, they aren't like you and I. They don't want to order the weird shit, right? Like, they need to be told, oh, it's kind of like General So's. Or like, yeah, it's a dumpling, but the filling is different, right? Because the culture isn't there. And I'm not trying to say it's a bad thing at all. I just think the shocking statistics of how many people in middle America don't even have a passport is a testament to the fact that some human beings are 100% okay with the status quo, and that's what they grew up with, and the desire to see more just doesn't exist. And that's so much more than okay. I'm not trying to shit on that at all. I'm just saying that's the reality. And on the other hand, as I do with this show, I try to compare it with all the other stories that we cover here because we go through the whole gamut and help. that helps provide context for me, right? So let's pretend for a second that Anthony Bourdain made this announcement, that he was going to open this restaurant called Lucky Cricket, and this was the plan. Would that make it that much more okay? What about David Chang? And you can answer that for yourself. But for me, I don't think so. I think that that leads me then to think that it's it's not Andrew Zimmern that's the problem. Like all this peacocking that he's doing is, is like pouring gasoline on the fire. But I think that the nature of the concept is the problem, right? I think about why we get so excited about Bourdain's career or even that Ivan Orkin announced that he's going to try to scale ramen to be bigger than sushi in America, right? And I think what those often come with the idea of things like sharing and hospitality and Bourdain of course, traveled around the world and told stories about these places and people that taught him things. And Ivan Orkin has this deep love for ramen and wants to share that with the world, right? And he wants to do it right. And he's about, he wants to be consistent and profitable and have a brand. And even the examples that Zimmern gives with Michael White and Italian food or Rick Bayless and Mexican food, there's a true sense of being committed to this cuisine, right? You don't see Michael White opening up Morea and then he goes off and does, uh, you know, like, 
um, Malaysian food the next week, right? Traveling there and learning why it's special and then sharing your interpretation of it. Like as I was writing this section, I stopped to think about it and I was like, let's say hypothetically he opens eight of the 200 lucky crickets that he plans to open and then it's a flop. Would he then pivot and then decide that a nationwide Peruvian chain was the next project? I can totally 100% see that. And therein lies the problem. And maybe that is like a problem with Zimmern himself, but I think there's this weird air of profitability and being holier than thou through education at the heart of this whole thing. And as opposed to things like sharing and good product and humility, I think that's ultimately the reason why people have such an issue with it because he's not only like presenting the concept that just seems like maybe he's had this in his head for years. Maybe he just came up with it like scribbling on a napkin at a bar talking about it with a friend. It just doesn't seem like he is as pot committed to it as some of these other people that he talks about where they've dedicated their entire life to to pursuing these through restaurants and the project that they take on. I think about the story we covered a long time ago where these girls went to Mexico and they learned how to make tacos and come back to the U.S. and they blatantly told everyone that they were just ripping off these recipes for their taco place and people's bullshit radars are stronger than ever these days. And sometimes it's just the way that you present something that rubs people the wrong way. And had Zimmern said, you know, look, everyone, I've spent years traveling the world. I find myself continuing to come back to this food from this area of the world. And it's incredibly inspiring to me. And I'm so excited to announce that this project I've committed to bring to the world and share with you is going to launch. And it's going to scale to these areas that I think are really going to love what we're making. And I can't wait to have you try it. Right. Rather than coming out of the gate, like shitting on P.F. Chang and equating himself to Rick Bayless. Fuck you, dude. Right. Like that's not how you get ahead in this industry. And food is way too culturally intertwined to just start yanking at strings like that. But ultimately, I ask, is Zimmern the right is it is Zimmern in the right here to come out guns blazing? Do you respect his confidence or is he 100 percent in the wrong? Is he culturally appropriating the cuisine for profit and fame? Let me know because this this definitely will not be the last time that we cover a story like this. People are very keen on, um, you know, kind of expanding their own culinary horizons and it doesn't always go as people intend. So I, I, I I'm going to continue to watch this, but it's it, we're going to we're going to use this as a case study and compare it to when this happens again, because it, it, it always does. Next up, a fascinating story from the New York Times titled, quote, WhatsApp is changing the way that India talks about food. And for me, it's fascinating for two reasons. One, my dad's from India. And two, I'm so immersed in the American food trends, right? To see something completely different while so much the same is super cool. And I think it's often a telltale sign of something that we could see possibly bloom here in the future. So here's the gist. There are 200 million Indians, that's one in every six people, using WhatsApp. And in addition to all the normal utilities that people use it for, food is at the core of it for some people. And here are a few examples. The article talks about this woman where her mom is really intimidated by technology, and WhatsApp is really easy to her, for her to use so that she can then share these details about a recipe f- through things like voice notes. And in a country where so many of the recipes are stored in people's brains as opposed to written down, this is a really powerful use of the app. So they cite an example um, saying like these really fine nuances of a recipe 
where, um, you know, like your mom or your auntie can say, brown the onions and listen for this sound. And then they can play that sound in the uh, voice note. And then that can then uh, transmit that information to, you know, the next generation. There's this guy who sells really amazing mangoes south of Mumbai, and he uses WhatsApp to send photos of the fruit as well as um, how they're growing to potential buyers all over the country. There's a chef in Bombay. uh, Well, there's a chef at a restaurant called Bombay Canteen that belongs to 20 different WhatsApp groups that span the restaurant's various departments, and he uses each one to do things like train new employees on the menu devise new dishes, and motivate the staff. He says, quote, I have a lot of folks who haven't even graduated from high school, but they are all really comfortable using WhatsApp, end quote. And there are several reasons why people are choosing WhatsApp over anything else. One gentleman saying that he, quote, found Facebook to be riddled with advertisements and hard to navigate. Creating a website would have required hiring developers and designers. And many of the in the WhatsApp group don't even have a computer yet. So and everything is on mobile, end quote. And apparently Instagram isn't favored because you can't track how many people have seen it, which is different from how WhatsApp works. Another great thing that stood out to me was the idea of conversation, the debate, the back and forth. One woman saying, quote, if someone said the cook in the family used to make onion pakoras using sliced onions, someone would come on and say, no, he didn't. He sliced, he didn't slice them. He chopped them fine. And then you can kind of have like this, people can correct each other and the conversation can continue to roll as opposed to like one-on-one, it's going down in the DMs kind of thing and no one else can see what you're saying. I think that's a really interesting way to kind of like democratize the entire process of sharing recipes. And on top of that, that translates into what we would call a pop-up here in the U.S., but Indians are using it as a marketing force to kind of sell things like spice powders or sourcing food after natural disasters. They give a really great example of that. And then, of course, like in-person gatherings. So you can like go on your WhatsApp group and say, hey, to the, you know, 200 and something people that are following, I'm going to have this food at this place at this time. Hope to see you there. Right. And that's a really interesting way to kind of market a pop up that doesn't exist here. Overall, the article also cites some really negative applications and problems with WhatsApp as things go. But as with anything, I think it's a really cool look at technology being this incredible force of good. I'm always going to be optimistic on technology. I know when I was in India two marches ago, my whole family was talking about WhatsApp, sending me recommendations on what to do and asking me to stay in touch. It's just not natural for me to use WhatsApp because I'm so used to using like iMessage and Facebook Messenger here in the US. But I think that the combination of only being able to have 256 people in a group absolutely helps a lot. You're way more inclined to add your two cents uh, there as opposed to kind of having the performance anxiety that sometimes comes along with preaching to your uh, 10,000 followers or whatever it is. I also think that creating these little pockets of like-minded te- people, the tribe mentality, which a bunch of people, not just me, have talked about, is never going to go away, right? We're social beings. And when those gathering, where and when those gatherings take place might change within these tribes, you know, but it's going to be online now. They're going to be in VR someday, etc. But for real, Sean Brock, if you're listening and you want to get this before it's too late project off the ground, give these elderly Southern women some phones with WhatsApp preloaded. I hear it helps. Next up, I'm calling an article, but it's really a written biography snapshot of this moment in time for a young chef. Eater published a piece called The Indomitable Jessica Largi which I'm finally saying right now, I think. I watched a few videos where she introduces herself, and I think I'm finally pronouncing her name correctly. 
And I'm 100% serious. It is incredibly long. But if you got any value from the interview that I did with Mike Trong in episode 84, where we briefly talk about burnout, it is 100% a good read for you. I really enjoyed it. I can also relate. Of course, so many people can relate to striving for perfection in a really ambitious kitchen and giving your life and your time and your energy and the sacrifices toward something, especially achieving these milestones so young. Um, the article cites her um, becoming chef de cuisine of Manresa at 20. A friend of mine who worked at Manresa says it was a sous chef at 25 and then chef de cuisine later, but regardless of those statistics and titles, it often leaves people in this weird place when you get uh, the, the good things happen so young. And Jessica kind of joins the ranks of these chefs, opening more sustainable models of restaurants. We cover them all the time here on the show. But just to cite a few of the reasons why she's seeking to be different with Simone, by the way, is the name of her restaurant in L.A., quote, paid vacations for her management team, four weeks for her chef de cuisine, two or three for her sous chefs, and six for herself— that's pretty good. And free yoga classes and subsidized massages for all of her employees. She wanted a no tipping policy and a focus, she said, on community, not competition. She wanted, above all, a restaurant that would offer its employees the possibility of the work-life balance she had once found so elusive, end quote. And a couple other details I should probably mention about this restaurant. It is 75 seats. Uh, again, it's called Simone or Simone. I'm not entirely sure. Someone correct me. One of her investors is one of the Russo brothers from the Avengers franchise. It is in LA. And the food itself has a bunch of different facets. So she does grain bowls and salads and sandwiches. And she has a large pastry kitchen to make sure that the staff, uh, the pastry staff feels like they aren't shoved in a back corner. And she also has a small tasting counter where she can flex on people as needed. Of the concerns of this uh, concept, of course, is definitely financially. People are expensive. Good food is expensive. L.A. is expensive, right? So she's still in the unknown of whether or not the business model itself is sustainable, even though, you know, like all the HR uh, foundations are definitely sustainable. Will it actually work at the end of the month, right? Or the end of the quarter, the end of the year. Second, the article quotes her in saying, quote, I want to be accessible. I don't want to build a restaurant where you can come in and have to spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars. I want you to be able to come into the bar and have a glass of wine for nine bucks and eat something simple and have a great time, you know, end quote. And I think that's such a double-edged sword for so many chefs, right? I've definitely talked about it before. None of us are def are getting into the industry for money. And it's so hard to justify a $300 menu when we know, as the chefs, we know we're, we're serving $100 worth of food. Does that make sense? But the PNL statement at the end of the quarter says otherwise, right? Where it's like, well, we only paid $100 for the food, brought in $300 for revenue, and we're only making like 26 bucks on this whole entire transaction, right? And she absolutely shares that vulnerability, saying, quote, there's no structure to follow because there's no example of this, quote. And I think in another life, had I gone to work at Manresa instead of French Laundry when I moved to Napa, when I moved to California, Jess and I would have probably become friends. But for whatever reason, our paths haven't crossed yet. I'm really excited to see what happens if and when I ever get to the chance to interview her on the show. Let me know if you'd like to see that happen. I'm already planning a trip to LA in February. Overall, I don't know if... She necessarily is in need of another set of eyes on her, but I'm 100% paying attention to Simone. She's also cooking at Meadowood this week, I think for the 12 Days of Christmas series. So there are no shortage, there, there is no shortage of good press for her, which is always amazing to see.
Next up, I feel like the last few shows, the, the, the news shows, have had this weird wine element about halfway through the show, and this is, I guess, no different. The Daily Beast did an interview with a master psalm named Bobby Stuckey, and the piece is called, quote, Our Great Sommeliers and Endangered Species. Let's find out. And so he shares a lot of insight on current trends. For those of you that might not know, natural wine, biodynamic wine, unfiltered wine, organic wine is having a bit of a moment right now, and a lot of the characteristics of this natural wine is totally totally kind of anti what the industry has pioneered for the past few decades. So Stuckey's response to that being, quote, I think the natural wine movement is a vacuum. The sommelier right now wants so badly to put his or her own flag on the wine list that they are making it elitist to the guest. They have built barriers. Everything has to be so weird and such a story. We don't care if the wine is any good or not. In the master sommelier blind tasting exam, they say, is the wine flawed or not? A lot of psalms don't care if it's flawed as long as it has a great story. So many wine lists create barriers for people because sommeliers want to have their list be about themselves, end quote. He also shares this very interesting quote when asked about price, saying, quote, noble doesn't mean it has to be expensive, but expensive needs to be great. I think I sell this. I think this because I sell Pinot Grigio for a living, end quote. And when asked about the advice for the next generation of sommeliers, quote, well, the first thing is to is don't make the wine list about yourself. Make the wine list about your guest and about the restaurant you work for. Have a point of view that is about your restaurant and about your guest, end quote. And I do want to take a second, draw a line in the sand. Sorry, fam, quick tangent. Food and restaurants and gastronomy in general has a very global and diverse arena to play in. And there are a lot of terms that aren't necessarily English. And I don't always pronounce things how they're meant to be pronounced. I worked with this guy in Napa where he would always shit on people who would talk in a completely normal English accent, but then they would tell you what they had for dinner last night, and it was about the amazing bucatini with truffles and black pepper, right? And he absolutely hated that. He would talk shit about that all the time, and it was at a butcher shop, I think, so a lot of things were Italian, and he thought it was so stupid. And then fast forward, the chef that I worked for uh, in Norway, he lived in Paris for a while, and he loved French things and really enjoyed talking about... uh, Pompierre or or Sancerre and all these words with such love and care in the way that he pronounced them. So I'm blaming my upbringing in this industry. Something that I sometimes I say uh, sommelier, sometimes I say sommelier, sometimes I just say som. But punchline is I lived with psalms for five years. I love wine. I do not. I mean no disrespect if I ever say uh, Giotto or Giotu. I'm just doing my best to not sound like a pompous dickhead and educate and learn myself. I'm always continuing to improve. It just. I hear things in different ways and my brain processes them as I'm speaking sometimes. So sometimes it comes out one way, sometimes it comes out the other way. And about these things that matter, that's what I want to talk about because the question goes, what's in a name? Okay, continuing on. So he actually touches on a really good point that's really related to the last piece that we covered, saying, quote, We have this thing in our industry, a list of who's great under 30. And the premise is stupid. There will never be an award for the greatest surgeon under 30. Matter of fact, you don't want to have a surgeon under 30 operating on you. Surgeons can have great careers in their 50s and 60s and even 70s. We should, as journalists and people, applaud the great hospitality professionals that have created it as a craft. The sad thing is, there are so few of them. Today's sommeliers are partying too hard, and they're getting burnt out. The sad thing is, people don't want to be getting mentored. They want to rebel against it. And it just goes back to Alice's water, Alice Water's statement. Side note, she says, it takes seven years to be a great waiter. Going back to the quote, our industry is never getting to be as great as it can be because the party atmosphere is artificially wearing people out, and we will never get to see the full potential, 
end quote. Think about that for a second. That's a really, really interesting point where it's like, you could have so you have so much more potential in you if you will allow yourself to get mentored and steered in the right direction, right? As opposed to thinking that like, I got this, I have so much potential, why do I need a mentor, right? Really, really impactful quote there. And it goes into so much more. If you want to dive deeper into the article, any article I talked about today, it's of course linked up in the show notes or on my site at justinconnacom slash podcast, as well as in the info or description tab of wherever you're listening, uh, podcast style or down below if you're watching on YouTube, including why the natural wine movement is apparently the Fox News of wine, why caring for the guest is so important, and why having your advanced certification before jobs become available might be a potential solution to all of this. That is all included in the whole entire article if you want to read further. So overall, I'm going to opt for the kind of stay in my lane approach to my takeaways for this story, aside from memorizing a few sauces and meat cuts and identifying a few raw fish. There wasn't a whole lot of memorization that stood between me and having a successful career as a chef. It was all about technique and speed and effectiveness and working with other people and consistency. And I think, if anything, I would offer the opposite for wine professionals, right? What if, as a part of the education or apprenticeship journey of a sommelier, they had to spend a harvest with a chateau or mentor under a winemaker and see a vintage from start to finish, how would that change the industry? It's kind of a rhetorical question, but also like something that I'd be curious to see how, how that would all change things. I know so many chefs who kind of change the way they prepare a carrot just because they visited the farm where they're grown. And I think that setting the metrics by which psalms are judged around memorizing labels and the story that gets sent along as a PDF file really take away from the craft. And I would also add definitely something that I supremely advocate for chefs, go out to eat. And if you're going to go out to eat as a psalm or a front of house professional in general, go out with other people, right? People who don't like restaurants, people who like restaurants more than you do, people who always order cocktails when you're more of a beer guy, right? So for example, if you've got a sweet tooth like me, go out with someone like my girlfriend who takes one bite of dessert and she's done. And that will really give you some empathy for the different kinds of guests beyond just what you like and what you don't like, right? And I think that would solve a lot of the selfishness that the gentleman being interviewed talks about. And for all the Psalms and front of house people listening, what are your thoughts? I would really be curious to know what you think of this gentleman's opinion, as well as, you know, my advice. Do you have any advice? Um, Tweet at me or comment at me. I want to know what you're thinking. Next up, I'm not sure how they got this story approved news. The New Yorker actually sat down with a Michelin inspector and probed for answers to those questions that we all have. The article starts off by giving a bit of uh, history on the anonymous inspectors, the guide itself, and then it actually gets good. So the name Maxime is just a nickname they gave this woman that they're covering in the article. Quote, I asked Maxime how she chooses what to order. She says, quote, you're looking for something that really tests a number of quality ingredients and then something that's a little complex because you want to see what the kitchen can do. We would never order something like a salad. We rarely order soup. She decided to try the foie gras brulee, although I usually avoid it because of the calories, end quote. Of the other little notables that I wrote down as I was reading the article, this inspector that they're covering and sitting down with eats more than 200 days of the year, lunch and dinner. They always eat the maximum number of courses offered. So if you have a three-course, a five-course, and a nine-course menu, they will always order the nine-course. They are required to eat everything on their plate. That's got to be brutal. They love asking a question and being able to tell that the waiter made up an answer. That's always a really interesting experience for them. 
When they opened an office in New York, uh, Michelin, they received 3,500 job applications to be an inspector. A degree in hospitality, hotel management, or cooking is mandatory to become a Michelin inspector. The interview process is kind of crazy. They take you out with a current inspector from Europe. They see what you order. They give you the wine list and judge you on what wine you order. And then you have to write a paper analyzing the experience. Then you have to fly to France to take part in the Michelin training program. Then you have to fly back. uh, Well, you have to fly to a different country and then get even more training. This inspector went to England for her training. And then after that, you have to mentor under another inspector from Europe in whatever city you're in for three to six months just to make sure that, you know, your bar for two stars is at the same level as the other inspector's bar for two stars. Not sure how I feel about that. But continuing on, they break down the foie dish that this Michelin inspector ordered, and they were eating at John George, just to give you some context. Uh, When she's describing it, she says, quote, it's not really a like and a not like. It's an analysis. You're eating it and you're looking for the quality of the products at this level, did they, they have to be top quality. You're looking at, was every single element prepared exactly perfectly and technically correct? When you're looking at the creativity, did it work? Did the balance of ingredients work? Was there good texture? Did everything come together? Did something overpower something else? Did something not work with something else? The pistachios, everything was perfect, end quote. She continues later on in the article to also address that insane moment when Danielle got dropped from three stars to two. I think most of us remember that. When asked if the consistency was the thing that was off, she says, quote, consistency and accuracy. It's just technical. I mean, cooking is a science. It's either right or it's wrong. And that's that's something that can be very objective. Either a sauce is prepared accurately or it's not. A fish is cooked accurately or it's not. There's the talent, the creativity that has to be applied to get a three star. He has to be a very talented chef, but there was just a lot of inconsistency. This year, she added, it was so obvious. It was so solid. Michelin sent inspectors back to eat at Danielle eight times over the year. And at the stars meeting, which he over, which this gentleman oversees, every inspector's report described the restaurant as faultless, end quote. But it still got two stars, which is why I was kind of curious to hear what happened there. But it goes into more depth to talk about Balud's response, finding that balance between consistency and being market-driven, where you know his chefs and his customers love that the restaurant is market-driven, but it doesn't always translate into the most replicatable food, and so on. I will end this piece with a quote of what happens after a meal as a Michelin inspector and how everything gets relayed back to Michelin HQ. Quote, after the meal, she would begin filing out her report, which is made in the form of entries in a classification form supplied to all Michelin inspectors. She would list every ingredient in everything that she ate and the specifics of every preparation. She would then rate these according to several criteria, including the quality of the products, mastery in the cooking, technical accuracy, balance of flavors, and creativity of the chef. She would then fill out the section that deals with the setting, comfort, and service, and that determines the number of couverts that the restaurant will earn. I'll talk about the service, the crowd, the decor, the ambiance, the wine list, the sake list, whatever is applicable. The salt, the glasses, everything you talk about the experience from the second you make a phone call to book the reservation to when you walked in the door to when the hostess greeted you or didn't greet you or whatever little goodies you have at the end of the meal. For a restaurant like John George, filling out the reports would take two to three hours. A Chinese restaurant might take an hour. Hour, end quote. Last up, industry style, we have direct answer. You folks send me a DM, and with your permission, I like to answer it in a way that might help the greater good. This question comes from at comes from at three underscore nut on Instagram. 
Hey, Justin, my name is Jesse. I'm currently an undergraduate biomedical engineering major at Johns Hopkins, interested in professional medicine and integrating food more into the profession, starting a pop-up late-night eatery coming in January. Um, any tips for someone who is who has very little experience in this industry to gain experience in the area? Do I think it's possible? Do I think that food can play a bigger role in medicine and public health? He's been listening to the emulsion, and he's curious about my input. So transparency's sake, my girlfriend, Anna, is a pharmacist. She is in healthcare. Both my parents growing up were in medicine. My mom was a pediatrician and my dad was in orthopedics. And so I absolutely think that food has to play some sort of a role in medicine and public health. The amount of people who would benefit from changing their diet is astounding. I don't think that it can be understated how important food plays a role in people's health. I've certainly noticed it. If you've ever, like, if anybody has ever gone on, you know, a diet or restricting what you're eating or, you know, changing up how what food you put into your body, it causes a change. So to think that food doesn't it, to think that food can't play a bigger role is crazy. And it's not just uh physical, right? Like it's mental. Like when you're if 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 someone is uh, if food really brings happiness to someone, taking it away causes the opposite effect. And then it works the other way, right? Like people with uh severe depression will often use food as like a crutch. You know what I mean? Like we, we that's that's not uh in an argument for me, right? Like it, it's a given. But I think that where things can sometimes go the other way is with lack of food education, right? And so I think for you, um, Jesse, I think that food education can be a huge part of what you're thinking about. So how can you think about doing a pop-up that also has, you know, some sort of an educational element either before or in the middle or after you partner with people who are smarter than you and leverage their audience to get people to then eat your food? Or maybe you work the other way. You decide that you are going to be the food advocate in food education. And then you partner with chefs like me and say, you know, listen, I really want to do a dinner with you based on, I don't know, tomatoes or biodynamic farming or whatever, whatever you decide that it is or eating without uh, using grains or something. And then you say, I'm going to bring my audience because you've spent time building an audience. And then you can go from there. Um, you can also go like the nutritionist route, right? Like how can you partner with people who are already into figuring out how food integrates with their health, whether that's personal trainers or people are already uh, nutritionists and you say, you know, listen, I know you're really trying to hammer this idea of eating paleo down people's throats, but I think if uh, you can use me as someone that cooks paleo food at a dinner, we could work together to, you know what I mean? Like that's, that's the route you need to be thinking about. Um, you also need to be thinking about your audience, who you're marketing to, are they young people? Are they old people? Are they people who, you know, necessarily don't give that much care to their health right now? They're young. They're still going out. They have years of health still left in them. Maybe that's who you want to target because you're really passionate about that. Or maybe you want to transition and go to the older demographic, people who have problems with their health and you're wanting to use food uh, in that way. I don't necessarily think there's a right answer or a wrong answer. I'm just trying to like feed your feed your curiosity with other options that being in the space for a while, I've seen that you can provide value to these other kind of circles. I would also look at someone like um, Dan Gusti from Brigade where he's kind of channeling school lunches. That's when I talk about like, you know, maybe you're not going to become the next uh, YouTube star of, you know, like getting kids to be interested about food like Jamie Oliver style, but maybe, you know, you're 
you're you're you're going into where they actually are. You're meeting them where they are, and you're providing them value by serving them great food in a meal that they're already eating every single day. Does that make sense? And what I think you really need to be concerned about is figuring out how to per- have have leverage on both fronts, right? So you have the skills to back up the knowledge, and then you also have the knowledge to back up the skills. And when I say one or the other, whichever one you feel like you're lacking, either surround yourself by someone who can, um, you know, prop you up in that way, or spend some time figuring that out, whether that's, you know, if you decide that you want more skills, maybe you decide to go be a prep cook somewhere and work your way up in a restaurant. Maybe you decide that you don't have enough knowledge, so you need to take an online course in something to get more education. I 100% think it's possible being a undergraduate biomedical engineer at John Hopkins. I think you're smart enough to figure it out. I just, I don't want you to stress about thinking that you have to be a Michelin-trained chef plus educated in food nutrition and all this stuff. I think, as I mentioned in my interview with Mike Trong, I think that the idea that the standalone knows-it-all chef is kind of a fallacy. I think you're better off surrounding yourself with other people if you truly want to make an impact, and then you can you know, steer that ship in whatever direction you guys all decide on going. That'll do it for Direct Answer this week. If you want to go deeper on any questions that you have, whether that's building your resume, starting to host pop-ups, uh, getting a raise at work, or maybe moving on to a new restaurant, I offer one-on-one coaching sessions through justincona.com slash coaching. And for listening this far into the show, I offer a discount because you've given me so much of your attention. If you enter end of the show as a discount code, that will give you a discount and you can save some cash because it's the end of the year. And I'm certainly thinking about uh, goals and moving on and crushing 2019. In our non-industry story this week, you folks know it's got to be Super Smash Brothers Ultimate. I feel like it's such a cop-out story because we all knew it was going to be good. The hype was so real. They spent so long building it out. But if anything, I think it shows that you can have something as massive as the Nintendo universe centered around the theme of just beating the pulp out of each other. And with the right focused gaming modes and options, it can truly be a cohesive piece. And I've unlocked, I want to say, like 35 of the fighters so far in World of Light, so... I don't have that many people to play with, though. Uh, Hubert's been working a ton, and uh, Dosfi and I don't have the same free time off. But all that means is I'm going to be training a ton. So you know when the time does come to really do some multiplayer action, I'm just going to destroy everyone. And I know, you're probably wondering, Justin, who are you maining right now? And I'm going to tell you, I started with Link, and then I really got the gaming mechanics down. I got the controls, finally. And so now I alternate between Fox and Marth and Roy. And on the really challenging World of Light levels, where I really need to kind of be, like, tanky and deal heavy damage, I roll with Bowser. If any of you are playing Smash and you want to link up, comment, or tweet at me, I would love to engage in some punching and sword fighting online. I can't promise I'll win, though, but at the same time, I can't promise you'll win. Eh? Eh? That'll do it this week for episode 85. As per usual, if you have stories that you want covered next week, shoot them to me on Twitter, hashtag the emulsion so I can find them. This might be the last solo episode of the year, at least in this news stories format. I'm 100% planning to do kind of an end of the year going into next year show where I kind of break down a bunch of things. So the trends that came and went in the industry, uh, what I'm seeing for 2019, not just for the industry, but also for myself and what you can expect from my content. Um, 
I will be traveling back to Wisconsin, and then I'll be going to Minneapolis for the holidays. Maybe we can do a Minneapolis meetup if enough people show interest for that, but the end of the year show will be shot at home. I will be bringing all of the gear that I uh, use to continue to produce, even though I will be on the road. So there will be one more interview episode to sneak in right before the end of the year, so stay tuned for that. Okay, thank you for listening. Outro time. Thanks for listening to the Emulsion Podcast. I appreciate your ears more than you know. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help sponsor the show, head on over to patreon.com slash justincana. Other ways you can help out right now include giving this show a review on iTunes so more people can find it. I also love seeing you folks liking and commenting on the video if you listen that way, or even just share this episode with a friend. Now is normally why I would tell you that my name is Justin Kana, and I hope you have a good one, but you've probably got another podcast episode to listen to, so I'm just gonna get out of the out of the way here excuse excuse me <laughs>